Coming up on Tech Nation, our final program from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, Nevada. You might think it's about technology, but no, it's about being human. We'll hear from Andrew Poliak from Panasonic Automotive about the human experience within self-driving cars and the cars of the future. From Gary Davis at McAfee about the human experience of security in our increasingly networked world. And from Jennifer Ernst of Tivic Health about an electrical medical device just approved by the FDA to relieve sinus pain. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. I hate to weigh in on a current hot topic, but sometimes it's helpful to add a few facts to the whirlwind of debate. What I'm talking about here is the Medicare for All discussion, or idea, political football, whatever it is. It's a rising concept in our society that all Americans need health care, not just the lucky ones who have private health insurance. Much of the debate, both pro and con, seems to boil down to one positive argument and three negative ones. The positive one is, this is the right thing to do. While the negatives loosely fit under, this will bankrupt us, or I like my health insurance just the way it is, and I don't like the government taking over my health care. Sure, there are more responses, but as I listen, these four shout the loudest. For clues on how to solve this, though, we might look across the Atlantic Ocean to another nation, the U.K., or more familiar to us by its constituent countries, England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales. The UK has had a health care for all system since 1948, and it's called the NHS, the National Health Service. What's interesting to me is that they also have private insurance. Take whatever services you want from the NHS, but with private insurance, you have more choices. You can go to the front of the line, pick your provider or your hospital. When the general NHS can't see you right away, you don't have to wait and you still have the NHS as a backup. Now, the average monthly premium in the U.K. for private insurance is $153 a month, and about 1 out of 10 take out private insurance. This 10% gets all of what the National Health Service has to offer whenever they want it, and they also get the advantages of private health insurance that are familiar to us in the United States. So how does this $153 per month, plus all the free NHS services, compare to the United States? In the U.S., the average health insurance premium is $393, more than twice as much. And in the U.S., when a health crisis happens, you get to deal with your insurance company, which is a for-profit business trying to make a profit, and hospitals and doctors and everyone else. It's enough to put you back in the hospital.
Now, the NHS is no utopia, but it is a health care service wherein the standard of care is decided by normal, everyday citizens, health care professionals, health advocates, and others working together. These decisions are organized under NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Constantly balancing these decisions to fit within the fixed NHS health care budget is challenging, but they are the ones who actually decide, for example, which cancer drugs will go to which patient populations through the NHS. It's heartbreaking work, but how it is actually done can be found on the Internet. And overall, there is one guiding principle. I remember it because it was told to me in an interview by the former chair of NICE, Sir Michael Rollins. He simply said that the guiding principle behind it all is we take care of each other. So who do you want taking care of you and the health services you will receive at no charge? Citizens, healthcare professionals, and health advocates, or for-profit insurance companies? The UK experience tells us that Medicare for All and private insurance can coexist, although the private medical insurance industry won't be quite so profitable. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, how situations close to us may soon be changing. We'll hear from Andrew Poliak at Panasonic Automotive about the human side of self-driving cars and changes we can expect in cars of the future. Gary Davis from McAfee tells us about the security environment as homes get smarter and smarter, whether we like it or not. And for those of us with allergies, a simple device approved by the FDA to relieve sinus pain. All this from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, Nevada. There's more to cars these days than meets the eye. It's the human environment as well. Andrew Poliak is the Vice President for Strategy and Innovation at Panasonic Automotive Systems America. Well, Andrew, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you for having me. All I've ever heard about self-driving cars is about the cars. What about us? What about us humans? I'll tell you, the idea of getting into something that you can be shuttled effortlessly, be able to figure out, make changes, kind of be yourself and be in your own environment, not feel uncomfortable that you're, you know, in somebody else's space or, you know, and with some of the rideshare services, I always find myself awkward, right? Do I talk? to them about what? And do I talk about their cars? And I always like to talk to them. It's always engaging. But sometimes if you want to just get from point A to point B and kind of check out, I think that will be an experience that will be interesting. It certainly is one I'd like to do all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to go down to the car, get in the curb, get in the car, have them take me where I want to go. Telepathically, it would be even better. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it's so funny because everyone knows to call my wife because they know I spend so much time on the phone for my job that I never answer the phone 
outside of work, right? I just want to relax a little bit and be able to turn my brain off. So sometimes that would be nice. I like the human interaction, but sometimes you need just that break. So I think you'll you'll get that in an autonomous vehicle for sure. But I think also there'll be a, a wow factor of going, this is the future, right? Now let's get to the tech. Uh, Panasonic is not an automobile manuf- manufacturer unless I, I missed the memo. No, that's correct. That's correct. What what are you doing in the automobile space? Well, we are experts in displays, also cameras, vision systems, sensing electronics, and also infotainment, things that would build your home living room within a space. We also have a a dominant market share in in in-flight entertainment. If you think about what an autonomous vehicle of the future will look like, it'll be like a premium pod, much like what you could find in a very high-end first-class in-flight system. So that's something that we do already. But in the automotive space, then, you are already there, even if it's not a self-driving car. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're in detection cameras right now you can find in Toyota vehicles when it does a backup and can detect that's a child behind you. So you, even if you can't see it, it could detect it and make sure you stop in time. Uh, we're in vision systems across many different applications. Here at CES, we're announcing new electronic technologies we're involved in, like Well, batteries, of course, like we have our um, engagement with Tesla, but also now with batteries with e-bikes, we've got connectivity solutions. We're just announcing with Harley around a connected experience for their new Livewire e-bike that will allow for, you know, checking status of charge, range, a number of functions, whether it's been tampered with or other. So we're heavily in automotive today in pretty much every aspect of electronics in the vehicle. And as you see electronics exploding from one or two modules per car to hundreds, we're in many of those hundreds of different modules. Well, it's funny, but software doesn't weigh anything. (laughs) What do you do with software these days that you used to do mechanically? Oh, man, that is actually a big function of my job, and I don't want to get too uh, nerdy with it. But there's such a consolidation because uh, car manufacturers are looking for more space to put all these sensors. So they're taking traditional things that you may think of like the infotainment system, the cluster that has your speedometer, tachometer, things like that, your head-up displays, and they're combining them into one device. Then that becomes a challenge where you have safety requirements, for example, on your turn indicators or your other uh, things that in the olden days you'd have a separate light bulb that would go out and let you know that that's not functioning properly. Now they do that with software. So we have technologies like hypervisors. We have multiple operating. Hypervisors. Yeah. I know I don't have one of those. What's a hypervisor? A hypervisor is kind of like what you might find on an Apple PC that allows you to run Windows and an Apple operating system at the same time. It's allowing you to run two different environments all on a single chip, one that's dedicated for safety environments, one that's dedicated for infotainment, and just isolating them with software for either security purposes, safety certification, things like that. You've used the term infotainment, and a lot of times Mm -hmm. we think, okay, backseat, put the screens down for the kids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We have to drive a long way. Does it include other things? Absolutely. So we're, um, right now we have the largest market share in what we call infotainment systems, but you can find Panasonic Automotive shipping in the new generation of Ford Sync, the new Chrysler vehicles, many of the Toyota and Honda vehicles, the new Accords that are getting rave reviews. So we're often in the front 
seat of the driving experience in terms of entertainment and navigation. Uh, but we're also powering from those boxes many other systems in the car. And maybe going back to autonomous for just a second, that goes back to the experience. I read an article about how many people feel a little guilty that they wouldn't leave trash or rubbish inside an Uber or a Lyft because you're riding in that person's car. But suddenly autonomous vehicles feel like hotel rooms where you might leave them a little messy when you leave. So if you think about you're guilty, asking, guilty, guilty. Yeah. You, <laughs> Don't look at my car. Exactly. <laughs> Referred to as the bookmobile by my friends because I pick up all these books at the station and they somehow they're kind of in my car. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Well, if you leave it in there, then what do you do? If Whether you left it on accident, like your laptop bag or your phone or whether you just leave your McDonald's wrapper because you don't want to carry it I won't do that. That's bad. Um, Those challenges are interesting from a technology perspective. And also, even you mentioned software, we have uh, cameras, obviously, from Panasonic. Using cameras inside vehicles to detect whether the vehicle needs cleaning, whether you left your laptop bag. When you don't have a driver, how are they supposed to know and not drive off? I've left my umbrella a number of umbrellas. It's not the same one. And you can kind of get out of the, the taxi or whatever yep. it is. And it's, oh, it's gone. Yep. You know, and who could see? But I guess with a camera taking a differential, you could tell. Yep. And actually here at CES, we have, uh, we're showing this thing that we're calling Spider 2, which is a, what we call a cockpit domain controller. So it's running safety elements, like I mentioned, like cluster and HUD, along with infotainment. But it's also got four cameras doing surround view cameras and all this but also an interior-facing camera with machine learning that can identify as something a cell phone. Is it a wallet? Is it an umbrella? Honey, you left your lunch. That's how many times did that happen in dropping off kids to high school? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. My daughter does that all the time. Not in high school yet, but. <laughs> yeah, that's, you can leave your lunch at any age. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll give you that. I think what's sort of interesting about, well, software doesn't, you know, weigh anything. And we have so much more going on. We still have the basics. You can't get away from the basics. It's still moving. It still has all these things to do. Yep. And yet, if we can reduce that to software on very, very light chips, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and how they communicate with the rest of the car can be done very simply. It seems like the cars could weigh less. Absolutely. And actually, I was going to make that comment. Software actually can make things weigh less, right? If you think about uh, in the past, some OEMs, and we were very big in what's called active noise cancellation. And that's a way where you can reduce either problem sounds, like locking up a torque converter at a lower RPM or, you know, some sort of rattle in the vehicle. But it also means you can remove sound deadening material out of the car's interior and basically do like, you know, stealth helicopters where they play the inverse sound of the noise being made to remove that from the cabin. So that can reduce driver fatigue. But more importantly, it can reduce weight from all those things you were applying in the car to make the cars weigh less, get better fuel economy, do a variety of things that really improve the performance of those vehicles. And we're in production with those type of active noise cancellation modules right now. Now, I happen to know you're going to be on a panel here. It will, by the time anyone hears it, it will have passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's called The Future of Transportation. What is next? Well, you can tell us. What are you going to say? Well, I'm going to really riff off my other fellow panelists because we have a really wide and diverse group. We have uh, a senior engineer that came from NASA originally that she's responsible for Hyperloop One. Uh, we've that's got. The, that's the uh, Elon Musk. Uh, uh, ability to go from, was it Los Angeles to San Francisco in a pod? Correct. Correct. Really fast? Correct. 
Um, there's also don't people, leave your rappers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's also somebody from Bell. So you think about helicopters. So this is going to cover the gambit from what's happening with the disruption in the supply chain for automotive. If you've seen all the announcements of OEMs dropping their vehicle passenger cars, because honestly, in the future, we may sell a whole lot less cars to consumers and rather those vehicles will be to fleets. And so if you look at our strategy and in previous roles in my life, I was in software and we realized that the decision making process for software was moving out of the tier one into the OEM. So we. OK, a lot of OEMs. people saying, oh, tier one OEM. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, good point. So moving out of the traditional first tier supplier to a car company. So if you look at Panasonic, we would be considered a first tier supplier. We provide hardware and software to the likes of GM and Ford and FCA and Toyota and others. But in my prior role, I was considered a tier two. So the next tier below that would typically sell to a tier one who would sell to an OEM. We realized that the decision-making process was moving to the OEM. So we started working directly with them to where they specified our technology. Similar things are happening in the likes of the Ubers and the Lyfts and the Waymos and the autonomous fleets. And in the past, a car company would build modifications to their cars for 30,000 taxi purchase out of you know, New York. If you think about Waymo, they've announced 62,000 Chrysler minivan purchases. They've announced another 20,000 Jaguar E-Paces uh, purchases. So that shift of the dynamics will be changing quite dramatically where those fleets may have a lot more input of what those vehicles look like. It may be specifying to the OEM, what do we build? Um, what, are, what are those car companies building? So we're getting very engaged in these mobility markets because they're going to be buying a lot of vehicles as cars become autonomous. And the cost it, traditionally in a lot of those autonomous components are a little bit too expensive for the average consumer to buy an autonomous vehicle. So it first falls into the fleets, and then you'll see it start to make its way into consumer vehicles as well. Well, it used to be you built a hard product, mm -hmm. and then you're saying you go around to all the manufacturers and say, well, we could put your sticker on it, but pretty mm -hmm. much this is our hard product. But when we're talking about software and at the level of hardware we're talking about, um, that can be changed and adjusted very simply. So people can get custom uh, equipment that they didn't in the past would be prohibitive just because you've got a lot of hard stuff here that you've yeah. built. Absolutely. I mean, the one trend we're seeing um, in our business is that everything's used to be you build to a spec, you put it in a car and it's shipped for X years. Uh, nothing is being designed without the idea of not just software upgrades and updates, but in some cases, even hardware enhancements during the life of the vehicle. What? Uh, yeah. What? My car isn't my car? <laughs> well, think about this. Um, you know, Porsche's CEO said we'd rather sell the same car a thousand times than a thousand cars. If your business is selling boxes to those thousands of cars, you better change kind of how you engage. Um, and if you're going to make these fleets that need to be personalized for new environments, whether they're autonomous or whether they're a lift type driven vehicle, you may want to personalize that vehicle with upgraded electronics periodically rather than just leave it the way it is over 5, 10, 11 years. So we've got a lot of things we've done. Maybe we were one of the first kind of championing this maybe six or seven years ago with something that we, we had a cartridge upgrade that could upgrade the hardware with a cartridge. Um, and you see these now coming into be where people are for sure, upgrading software. The Harley example we did with the launch will allow for software updates to that module and to that bike. But 
in the future also the the idea of upgrading the hardware will absolutely be part of the car the that is just totally new in the car scene you buy absolutely. a car that is it and so the uh, more that goes to software and the hardware that supports it, the small hardware that we're talking about, uh, changes the life of the car for a family. Absolutely. And I could, just like you'd say, well, you can sell your house, but you're going to have to paint everything and make it look nice. It's mm-hmm. like you can sell your car, but you better have the latest upgrade or nobody will buy it. Absolutely. <laughs> I can see it coming now. Yep. Well, and also, by the way, the whole idea of personalization when you move from car to car to car, um, right now – there are some connections in these mobility markets that would allow you to be a rideshare driver in a car that's not yours. So in that environment, you may want your services, your navigation. Maybe it's your, um, you know, I, it seems like everyone has both Uber and Lyft, right, running at the same time. Maybe it allows them to have their their applications download into a larger screen. It personalizes it with the vehicle they're in. And I mentioned the acoustic uh, echo cancellation. We're seeing in some ride shares, uh, we're starting to have lots of screens in vehicles and private audio zones. So imagine sitting in a car, you might be sitting next to a stranger listening to NPR and they can't hear anything, but you're, you could touch them. You could reach over and actually physically touch them. But we're creating these sound bubbles where you could have a large vehicle shuttling many people around and uh, all in their own personal private audio space with not without headphones. It's doing it all with a private sound bubble. So you shouldn't do this because you're having a fight with your partner. <laughs> <laughs> they have theirs and you have yours and you're not talking. You know? Yeah. Or <laughs> but, maybe I want to listen, you know, maybe I want to <laughs> listen to the radio up front and the kids want to watch a movie and they want a separate environment, even if you're not talking about a rideshare. Everybody doesn't have to it. sing the Davy Crockett song. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. And you still don't have to have them tuned out into headphones. You could have them still part of the car, but listening to their own media. Well, this is the first Panasonic interview we've ever done on Tech Nation. And I have to say, you know, I had this super duper clock radio made by Panasonic back in college. And you guys have really come a long way. (laughs) Andrew Poliak is the vice president for strategy and innovation at Panasonic Automotive Systems America. More information is available at PanasonicAutomotive.com. When it comes to all this talk about security and cyber hacking at every level and the escalating increase of smart devices all around us, how does an everyday person sort it all out? Not by what tech to buy or avoid, but rather how to think about it. My next guest might just be helpful. Gary Davis is the chief consumer security evangelist at McAfee. Well, Gary, welcome to Tech Nation. I'm delighted to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. I hope so. Because <laughs> we'll have to throw you out if it's Yeah, not. I, would understand, I would understand that. Yeah, you're just not hitting <laughs> the mark. It's got to be a okay. certain level All of right. fun. All right. Now, you, of course, are with McAfee. And anybody who ever had a computer knows about McAfee. But McAfee security and privacy and their products, it goes more beyond just your personal computer, right? That's right. For the longest time... Everybody would tie our brand to antivirus. Yeah. Because you know, you're right. If you had a PC, we were on there and we were the company protecting you. But over the years, as, as we've taken more devices, smartphones, and now all these things going to the home, we, we've stepped back and said, we're really not about antivirus anymore. Now, we still do that and we're really good at it. But it's really about protecting what matters for all of our customers. 
And for us, protect what matters is a very personal thing. You know, there's certain things about my life that I feel for, and I want to make sure are protected. My children, their children, I want to make sure my identity is protected. But there are other people who have other needs, and the whole notion of this is to have a portfolio of products that a consumer can come in and say, that's going to protect what matters to me, and let me embrace that. It's one thing to buy a computer and you say, I can see it, I'm connected to the internet, I know something's trying to attack it. But now we're in this era where we buy all kinds of things for our home. And whether we like it or not, it seems like everything's got to be smart. Where does McAfee play in that space? Sure. That is the question to ask for sure, because it's happening more than you think. Today, we connect about 4,800 new devices every minute of every day. IDC predicts that by 2025, we'll be connecting 152,000 devices every minute of every day. And that's all in. That's going into industrial use, home use, everything like that. But when you think about that, that, when we think about that within McAfee, that's a dramatic expansion of the attack surface. So all these devices are going into homes. And the challenge we have, quite frankly, is that the device manufacturers are really solving for time to market and convenience. The most important thing for them is I want to get this device into the hand of the consumer and make it easy. For the consumer, when they get that device in their home, their only thought is, well, how do I get this device to deliver that service that I want? And no part of that is security been contemplated. And what we're finding is that's really exposing these devices to a lot of potentially bad things. I have to say that everybody who is involved in building and developing these smart devices, they keep saying, we have to get it so it's so easy that anybody can do it. Because in the past, you've had to have to have some technical knowledge or some mechanical knowledge or something to get the whole thing together. They're all directed to bring it home, take it out of the box, plug it in, you're all set to go. Does that make it more difficult to protect? By far. Because if if you don't consciously put a security step in there someplace, that device is going to be at risk. A great example, a couple months ago, we went out and bought a commercial DVR, brought it into our lab, plugged it in. It was a digital video recorder that anybody could get. Yeah, there's nothing special. Go with their television. Go to Best Buy and just buy it and just bring it into your home. So we went and bought one, plugged it into our lab, fired it up, and then watched what happened. And we we had a, a monitor on it. Within 60 seconds, the device was crawled. In other words, the internet had found the device. It was authenticated to. In other words, it would try a series of username passwords, and then it would found one that worked, so it accessed the device, and then the malware was installed. In this case, it was the Mirai malware. So that was 60 seconds. So you get home, you turn it on. Within 60 seconds, this device is infected and can be used for botnet or other types of activities. That you would never know. No idea. Yeah, no idea. You would never know. I think what's so interesting there is that you have to plug it in to go in and change it to your name and your password. So between the time you plugged it in and you put your own name and password on it, it was already infected. Pretty much. That's why it's so important. Again, the very first thing we always suggest consumers do is change a username password. And quickly. And quickly, yeah. That should be your first order of business. And what happens is they bring it in and, and they're, they're obviously they have the book out and well, what do I have to do and all this sort of stuff. So it's, it'll sit there for a long time before they actually even think about that step. That should be the first step they should think about because that's going to be the easiest way for a, a bad actor to get access to that device is by – we call it a brute force attack. It's going to try a bunch of username passwords. It's going to find one that works. 
and is going to get into the device. I've been speaking with Gary Davis, the Chief Consumer Security Evangelist from McAfee. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts for Tech Nation are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, a device newly approved by the FDA to relieve sinus pain. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Gary Davis, the Chief Consumer Security Evangelist for McAfee. The very first thing we always suggest consumers do is change the username password. You know, and, and, and quickly. And quickly, yeah. That should be your first order of business. And what happens is they bring it in and, and they're, they're obviously they have the book out and well, what do I have to do and all this sort of stuff. So it's, it'll sit there for a long time before they actually even think about that step. That should be the first step they should think about because that's going to be the easiest way for a, a bad actor get a act, to get access to that device is by – we call it a brute force attack. It's going to try a bunch of username passwords. It's going to find one that works, and it's going to get into the device. And manufacturers generally send everything out with one yeah. account and password. Yeah. I knew that from being up in Lake Tahoe with, with some family and friends and – Unbelievably, all of a sudden, the the uh, alarm went off, you know, and it wouldn't stop. And and finally, they said, call the call the fire department. Yeah. Police said, call the fire. They said, call the fire department. They handle this. Yeah. And the fire department didn't blink. They came right out. And I had I said I found the the manual. And so we, and he goes wait, and he pushes in four numbers. Yeah. And it stopped. And he goes, ah, eh, they all put in that that code. Yeah. That's right. It was like that, what? That's exactly it. There's it's, it's and that's that they're in the problem lies. The bad guys know this. The bad guys know all the standard default passwords they use, and again, they just cycle through them until they find one that works and they get in. And, and again, that's probably the interesting data study. Uh, a couple years ago, HP looked at the top ten devices deployed in the home, 
And they found on average, they had 25 vulnerabilities each. And these were things that if you're a security practitioner, you think, what are you thinking? You're not requiring a, a reset for the default username and password, um, not having encrypted communications. There's just these things that you, you, you scratch your head as a security person said, you really need to have this stuff in there. If this device has any hope of being secure or, or, or take proper care of within your family environment. Let's go back to your original example. Okay. You got a device, you put it in, like your DVR, whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, any of these smart devices from light bulbs to uh, Nest systems that control, doesn't matter what it is, you bring in a device and you turn it on and you got to scramble and hope that they didn't find you and are trying to install malware. Mm-hmm. How could... How could McAfee design something that would protect against that ever happening? That was the challenge we presented ourselves a couple of years ago. We saw this happening. We saw the, the, the adoption of all these devices going to the home. And I'm not sure about your home. My home has now 37 connected things. So and every day, I'm going home and and count them. Yeah, well, well I, 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 I bet they're more than I'm thinking. <laughs> well, you're right. You don't think about it. I, I, anyways, I'm pretty I confident my old toaster is not connected yeah, to the well, net. Yeah, but hope, I'm, I'm going to look yeah. at everything else. <laughs> but anyways, so all these things are going in there, and and you don't know. You lose sight of the inventory, right? So, it, but we what the the premise that we took is like we know. The challenge. We know the companies are solving for what they're solving and we for. And we have no control over the companies. No. And we try. We, by the way, that's been a part of our discussion. We've been going out to meet with industry and say, uh, folks, it's really important that you build some baseline security in this. We understand you want to get it to market. We understand you're trying to make it as simple to use as possible. But understand the consequences of putting a lot of devices out that have no security. But it's, it's, it's been a struggle. Honestly, it's been a struggle. So – and then we understood how consumers would treat the device. So we thought, you know, we need to step back and understand how we can provide, build something that will allow that to be protected. And the, the most logical place was the router because all the all these, the wireless router, you yeah. get Internet coming in, and that's what gives all these yeah. devices access is correct. your router. That's correct. And that's, that's where all the magic happens in the house. So what we did is we said, well, let's go ahead and, and you, you from your earlier statement, our – Typical go-to-market, the way we, we people know us, is by being loaded on these PCs. Well, the router is just another device that's being built by a company. So let's go engage with those companies and actually build our software, build security software into that device. And we've done that. And that's about been deployed at companies like D-Link and Aris and some of the other well-known routers. The recognizable recognizable names, yeah. manufacturers, yeah. And then, and then we thought, well, really to get this out there at scale – we really have to partner with the ISPs and telcos because what happens is internet most, service providers and internet telephone service. companies. I'm sorry, yeah, I, you are. I, you're an insider. I know. Man. I know I'm sorry. <laughs> these, these words just get baked in my mind. So you're right. Telephone companies and internet service providers, and because that's the last mile. Most consumers don't buy their own routers. They'll, they'll get a subscription to a Verizon or somebody like that. And they and mail them to them. Yeah, yeah. And, they'll, and they'll install it. Right. Yeah. So. So that's what that's where we are. We're now we we just um, recently signed a big relationship with Verizon. So now every Verizon FiOS com- customer will get this this built-in security. So when you build it in, and by the way, it starts day one. It, it's just everything that you do is being uh, protected by this router, and, and it doesn't matter. And by the way, I'm sorry, I'm rambling a bit. It also protects your PCs and your phones. 
So you, you, get the, the, you get the protection of all these devices that are coming in the home, all these things you don't know about. But those devices you've had in there historically, the, your PCs and smartphones and stuff and stuff like that are also being protected. Well, on your, your smartphone, you say, well, I don't want to use my standard you know, uh, phone contract for all this data. I'm just going to log on to my wireless account so that I don't you know, run up that bill. And you're immediately uh, open to all the malware that can come in via that route. Yes. Well, th- and that's what you want to protect. Exactly. And we want and we want to do that in the home. But we also acknowledge when a when a customer leaves the house because they're going to take that smartphone, and they're going to go to a, a coffee shop or an airport and they're going to want to do the same thing. Well, I don't want to burn up all my data. I want to you know connect to the free Wi-Fi. And those are the environments where a great deal of risk is introduced because those are the environments, again, where the bad guys, it, it, they'll do this thing called spoofing a Wi-Fi. If you go into a coffee shop and you look at the top broadcasting SSID or the, the name that you're going to connect the, to. For, yeah, they usually get the, a list of names yeah. and here's the top one that yeah. they want to offer you. And most customers, that's the one they click on because they assume that's the right number. That's the right one to connect to. Bad guys know this. And what, they, what they'll do is they'll create another SSID with that exact same name and put a space at the beginning. So now that becomes the very top name. So when you go in, you just you, you connect to a, a a bad Wi-Fi hotspot, pardon me, and that's where all your information is really going to get exposed because at that point, they can see everything that you do over that connection. And that putting a space before the name, when you sort it, the space will come first in a Correct. list. Correct. And though, even though the second one says Phil's Coffee Shop and the first one says Space Phil, Phil's Coffee Shop, it's like, oh, well, that looks right. You know, yeah. just we'll just use that. They they probably have a couple of these. Yeah, those are the bad guys. Yeah, those are the bad guys. Those wow. the guys, who love, and, and it's tricky. And you, you, people don't think about this stuff. And so, one of the other things. So, so you you you've taken that smartphone from the more secure environment in your home, where you you're protected by the router and you're protected by other controls in your house. But now you're in a very in, unsecure area. And one of the things that we're also looking at are virtual private networks. And what they basically do is they will create an encrypted ch- channel between your device and the Internet. So if you use one of these bad Wi-Fi Space spots. Space, Phil's <laughs> Coffee Shop. Apologies to everybody named Phil and everybody who is named Phil and has coffee shop. Okay. Okay. <laughs> if you use that, if we have this virtual private network uh-huh. and we select the Space, Phil's Coffee Shop, then what happens? Basically – um, that bad actor can't see anything you're doing because that that traffic's all encrypted, and it's going over, uh, and it's that that is basically a, a point-to-point connection that they can't access. Rats. I know, and they they, rats. they really hate VPNs. The bad guys don't like VPNs because it takes away one of their best sources of getting information from consumers and, and other people. Well, I think it's it's a it's an easy concept to grasp. Everything I have that is wireless and can connect through that's smart can connect through some kind of network i got to take a look at that and say okay where am i how's it going to connect to what if i protect it one at a time knowing that it's protected then i'll be fine but of course we're in this transition state where there's some things that we didn't even know it was connected we haven't been paying attention so we bring in a great security system such as the one that that you're describing from mm-hmm. McAfee and we already have malware in in the light bulb in the, in whatever we have mm-hmm. what about the malware that's already on those devices yeah. it'll 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 detect that 
because in essence, what happens in those situations is it's communicating with a we call it what we call command and control server someplace. So it's having a a discussion with a a, a known bad site that's giving it direction. So we'll know that and we'll say, okay, that's a bad connection. There must be malware on there. And what we'll do in most cases is we'll inform the consumer, this is this is a you have malware on this device. Here's what you need to do to get rid of that. Basically, in most cases, it's just resetting the device and it flushes out the memory and it goes away. So that's it, but, right. You know the bad actors by what they say. By what they say. So who, if they just sat there and they waited for a few months and then they kind of came alive and said, "I'm going to ping you, say I'm still out here," and you go, the moment that they speak, you know them. Yeah, yeah, because they they're all broadcasting from the same basic domains and IP addresses. Yeah. Boy, it's an interesting space. Yeah. Do you ever wear like a, a white cowboy hat? Like you, know, <laughs> you know, white hat here. <laughs> the, the thing that makes the sheriff's down. Uh, what makes it so Gary's much fun is, is you feel like you're doing good. You know, you, you wake up every day and, and you feel like your mission is to protect. So right now we have 500 million uh, devices that we protect. And you wake up every day knowing that the bad guys are doing all they can to try to disrupt those devices. So it gives you a good feeling that you're doing something honorable, that this is something that, that if we do it well and, and we, we, we educate and inform consumers on what's going on, that we're going to make it safer for everybody. So there's, there's a sense of, yeah, just gives you a good feeling about what you're doing because you're doing the right thing. Well, Gary, it's been a real pleasure. I hope you come back and see us again. I will for sure. Thanks for having me. Gary Davis is the Chief Consumer Security Evangelist at McAfee. To follow his take on security issues and concerns over time, his Twitter handle is Gary J. Davis. That Twitter handle is Gary J. Davis. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Forty million Americans suffer from hay fever or nasal allergies. That number grows to over 400 million globally. Many have tried either over-the-counter medicine or prescription drugs or both. What if you could get relief without taking a pill? Jennifer Ernst is the CEO of Tivic Health. You have a new uh, medical device. You've got FDA clearance four days ago. As of this recording, the FDA is closed. Government shutdown. How did you possibly get... Uh, a clearance from the FDA four days ago. Oh, we have actually been working through the holidays diligently with them, even uh, right through New Year's. And that one portion of the FDA that is not shut down is the review process because the review process is funded by companies rather than by the government. So our user fees for the application process cover the Basically, turn kept them right in operation. around. Turn and right around. The review. So, if you believe it, they worked with us through the holidays, and on January second, issued us a clearance for the new product. I'm very impressed. Whether the government was open or shut does not matter. You know, it. Uh, what really matters is that is that you got a brand new device approved by the FDA, and that's absolutely essential. Now, let's talk about that device. What does it? aim to do? What problem does it aim to solve? Well, let's start with the the problem set. Uh, There are about 40 million sufferers or more of allergic rhinitis in the U.S. alone. And what is that? Nasal allergies, hay fever. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, sneezing and everything else that goes with it. And that's about 400 to 500 million globally. One of the most persistent problems that's associated with um, allergies is the fact that um, 
pain treatments in particular, that sensation of a dull pressure or sharp pains associated with it, don't really have any good solutions. And in fact, it's, it's kind of funny to think over-the-counter pharmaceuticals for sinus cold and allergy are a $130 billion segment of pharmaceuticals. And yet they don't work all that well for very many people. Um, we found in our research that only about 6% of people that use them would say they are extremely satisfied with the outcome of the product. So we have developed an alternative to medicine. We're using very tiny amounts of electrocurrent therapy um, to relieve sinus pain associated with nasal allergies. So let me get this straight. Your sinuses are all clogged up, and as a result, you're in a lot of pain, all sort of in around your eye area, that whole sinus cheekbone area. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's something people ha- have to live with, and when they take these decongestants, they don't really work. Right, and the decongestants are working more on mucosal expression. Um, a lot of that pain and pressure is coming from swelling of the tissue, the stretching of the nerve fibers, um, pressure that's created in the cavity. These are air-filled cavities in our head. Uh, nobody really knows exactly why we have them, um, but they do serve as a fundamental part of our breathing process. And when they get cogged up, and particularly when they cause us pain, um, it can be absolutely debilitating for some people. I mean, it takes people out for weeks at a time, if not sometimes months. Well, I'm, I'm looking here at your device. It looks like a, a short, stubby ballpoint pen, <laughs> but it doesn't write guess, on you. <laughs> I guess I call it a teardrop or a pear shape more. Um, sure. Yeah, you know, we're about, we get about the size. It's about the size of a business card um, in a teardrop shape, and it has you know a little bit of a rounded tip at the top of it and a more loblong, rounded part at the bottom. And that very concentrated small tip at the top um, is applied to the cheekbone, the nose, and the brow bone. Now, what what do you do exactly? Tell me what you do with it. So if you can envision uh, this little pear shape I'm trying to describe. It's got a ball bearing sort of at the end, what looks to be a ball bearing. Very much so. Um, So something that's rounded like a ball bearing. Um, You would then take that tip of that device and apply it to the cheekbone, glide it along the cheekbone until the device vibrates, And when it vibrates, it's telling you that it's found an optimal treatment point. You then wait till it finishes vibrating. That's about seven seconds. Move it to the next, glide it until you find the next treatment point and complete a, continue doing that until you complete a circle that goes around the cheek area, around the nose area, and around the upper eye brow bone. And those are all the areas that are associated with your sinus cavities, basically your upper and lower sinuses. And what's there? What has it found? Um, Well, Using electrical properties to detect the the general location of nerves and and vasculature, your veins, your your blood flow, and those are the two type of features that we can use electrical current to induce some biological responses that help manage the pain. Um, so one of them, there's one thing that's portion that's associated with the trigeminal nerve. Um, that's one of your major nerves that runs around in the head area that regulates the the pain signaling to the brain. And the second part is nerves, the sympathetic nerves that are associated with your with your veins and with your um, blood flow. And in that case, stimulating the sympathetic nerves with the kinds of frequencies we're using has been showing to cause the vessels to tighten up. You basically constrict them a little bit. That reduces the area that they take up in the membranes, and that would reduce that sensation of stretching and pressure. So what's interesting to me here is we're basically giving a little bit of charge, electrical charge here, to make some adjustment 
to this area. And uh, and result, hopefully, is sinus pain relief. That's a great way to put it, is a little bit of adjustment in the signaling paths. And this is part of a larger movement that's going on, a larger momentum that's been building around the use of electrical medicine. Um, pharmaceuticals are based on the idea that our body is an electrochemical system, and the pharmaceuticals are treating the chemistry side of it. There's a growing wave of treating the electrical signaling, and I think you're, the way you just phrased that is just making little adjustments in the signals so that you can get um, beneficial effects without all the side effects that are typically associated with pharmaceuticals. Now, this is a medical device, which means it has to go through review by the FDA. There are several levels that it could go through, um, but you've taken some particular path and you had to provide some data. Let's take everybody through that. What did you have to do? Uh, so as you said, it is a regulated device. Um, so we've provided clinical data, proof of efficacy, the data that we've provided to the FDA was a double-blind, randomized control trial. Um, so the gold standard, a sham-controlled trial, conducted at one of the major universities, a leading sinus research center in California. Um, 71 patients through the study. Now, for some people, that might not sound like a lot, but what you have to remember, what you have to know is that if you get a big effect then you don't need a lot of people to prove that it's statistically significant. When something is only gives a little bit of benefit, that's when you have to run out 3,000 people to prove that it actually works. So we were able to prove efficacy um, for relief of allergic rhinitis or allergic nasal allergies um, just on a 49-patient population because the effect is such a strong immediate effect. Um, so we had patients use the device in the clinic, um, they tried it on one treatment within one five-minute treatment. Ten minutes later, we took the measurements, and within that period, three out of four people had experienced relief. Uh, one out of four people had experienced significant relief, and it was over 30% average reduction in pain with just that one treatment. Um, this was pretty significant for the doctors that have reviewed this with us because this symptom is something for which they have no good treatments. You know, it's something they've been treating patients for for years, decades in some cases, without getting much result. So to see people come through a clinic and in five-minute treatment, 10 minutes later, they're seeing 30% reduction in pain, it just kind of blows them away. This, is, this makes – and nothing has infiltrated their system at this point. Right. And there's nothing – there's no chemicals, no chemical side effects. Um, the only side effect we have seen is a little mild reddening of the skin when people are using the treatment. Um, that was one person out of 71 who had a little reddening of the skin, and it went away in 15 minutes. Now, you've said 71, and you've said 49. So 49 was the subset of allergy with the people that were allergy, and then the rest of it was broader sinus pain indications, such as people who had chronic, diagnosed chronic sinusitis, sinus infections, and something that's called vasomotor sinitis, which is um, when, you, when changes in weather affect, you know, give you headaches. Um, so we had that cross-section of the population in order to have a, um, a broad sampling of the underlying causes of pain, and we saw relief across the group. And then uh, working with the FDA, they focused very much on the subgroup, which was our allergy sufferers, where we saw the strongest results. Now, let me ask you, some set of these people got a dud device. 
they were going along. <laughs> that is, that, I guess it shook every so often that they didn't get a charge. The placebo device, if you will, mm-hmm. the dummy. Um, is that the case? What, what percentage of the, the people tested got that? Uh, so it wasn't quite a half and half split, and I apologize, I don't remember the exact number, but uh, something close to a half and half split between people using what you call the dud device, or we'd call it a sham device. Um, that particular device did not use the microcurrent or use our, did not use our pulsed AC electrical current. Instead, we had a small amount of DC current uh, that allowed us to emulate almost perfectly um, the operational the operations of the active device. So it would find those centers, it would vibrate, and you'd stay there for five seconds or seven seconds, and then move along, and then move to the next location. But nothing really got delivered. Nothing, nothing of therapeutic benefit got delivered, and that device. Uh, this is actually an area that's really hard to do sham, <laughs> sham controls because when you're applying electrical stimulation. There's often the factor that people can feel it or they expect to feel it. Uh, We are using such a low electrical current that many people don't even feel it when they're using the active device or they may feel a tiny little prick occasionally. So in the uh, one of the measures of do you have a good blinding is what they call a blinding index and it's could somebody have guessed? Could somebody have guessed whether they had it? Um, So in the group that mattered we had a 50-50 which is Perfect. It's considered a perfect blinding index. Uh, my researchers were thrilled with that, to be able to see that. Um, the manuscript for this particular study will be published in the International Forum for Allergy and Rhinology. Um, it's one of the high-impact peer-reviewed journals. And we won the runner-up for the best clinical manuscript at the recent uh, pure, the American Rhinologic Society meeting, which is uh, the ENT doctors that come together, the academic side. Now, what was the? I guess there was no relief for for the people with the sham device, or or very little. Um, we did see a little relief, but much less than what you saw with the active microcurrent device. Some of that is what you would consider placebo effect. You know, you're just your massage. I so want something. <laughs> I so want something. I'm massaging this area. Um, it is known that massaging the pressure points will also give you some relief. And then the fact that we had the vibration, so they are getting a little bit of vibration stimulation on those points, probably also created some effect. We still saw about twice, you know, our our improvement in sinus pain was about 2x what the sham device was. How did you keep track of which devices were sham and which were real? Because they must have looked identical, have a number on them. Well, funny story about that. <laughs> um, through the study, you label them. You have them labeled A and B. Um, as we were doing development, we had them simply numbered, uh, and we were supposed to remember which number was which. Uh, one of my engineers actually ended up trying to debug a device for f- 45 minutes, driving himself nuts because he thought he was working on an active device and realized he was working on a sham after about 45 that minutes. That was never going to work. It was never, it was never going to give him it. the effect he was expecting. <laughs> it wasn't going to give him the output readings he expected. Now, you got your clearance from the FDA. How long will it take to get this into the market? So we're looking at mid-year launch. Uh, once you get your clearance from the FDA, then there's another process you go through where they need to audit you and, and make sure that your manufacturing sites are up to snuff. And that will take us about mid-year to get everything set up. Product should be available on our website uh, on our website by mid-year. Now, is this over-the-counter? It is. That was one big exciting piece of the clearance for us was the um, designation as an over-the-counter product. 
about 40 percent of the people that suffer don't see a doctor. So it was important to us to be able to make it as accessible to people as possible and not have it that you have to convince your physician that that this might be something useful to you to get a prescription. And then your insurance company to say, gee, maybe you need this. And then you have to go through the insurance reimbursement hurdles and everything else. So um, this was a philosophical decision of the company is we want to focus on chronic conditions. We want to focus on making this kind of bioelectronic technology available on a mass scale and available to the largest number of people. So we're introducing it to market at a price point that you don't have to worry about reimbursement, that you know, a significant number of people who suffer chronic conditions will be able to afford it, and it's, it'll be affordable for them. And it's over the counter, so you don't have to have a prescription. What's the name of the product? Oh, the product is Clear Up Sinus Pain Relief. That's descriptive. <laughs> it is descriptive. We're still able to file for trademarks, but it is descriptive. Nobody else has that. Well, I'll say that our internal product working name was Sinus Pain Relief, and we did decide that probably wasn't descriptive enough. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, Jennifer, congratulations again to you and your team, Thank and you. I hope you come back see us again. Thank you. Jennifer Ernst is the CEO of Tivic Health. More information is available at TivicHealth.com. That's Tivic, T-I-V-I-C, TivicHealth.com. From the Consumer Electronics Show, CES 2019 in Las Vegas, Nevada, it's a wrap. Many thanks go to our entire crew and the media support staff at the Consumer Technology Association. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancorn.